All right, welcome to this episode of the Insignificant Others podcast. It's episode number five. I'm Brett Featherston, and I'm happy you're joining us. This podcast is available on both iTunes and SoundCloud, and we very much appreciate the fact that you're listening, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please visit us at facebook.com slash insignificantotherspodcast. Let us know your thoughts, ideas for future guests, whatever you want to talk about. By the way, the Insignificant Others podcast is now on the new and noteworthy list on iTunes. We're not necessarily high on the list, but we're on the list nonetheless. So we've got a great guest today. Uh, You're really going to love it. Professional golfer Harrison Frazier. Harrison was an All-American golfer at the University of Texas. He won over $11 million on the PGA Tour. He played in 14 majors. And he's gracious enough to join us today at the Insignificant Others Broadcasting Headquarters, otherwise known as my kitchen. Harrison has a great story, and we're going to get to that in a couple minutes. But first, let me introduce my podcasting partner in crime, Rob Flint. Rob, how you doing? Good, Brett. How you doing? I'm awesome. A good day for a podcast. It's always a good day for a podcast. There's, there's no such thing as a bad day for a podcast. Good point. So, so I, I, you know, I have a lot of things on my mind. I'm just going to hit them quickly because I think that uh, most people want to listen to uh, Harrison's story. So here they are. Well, it's also because there's no depth to your mind. But that's there's, no, there's absolutely no depth. So here, 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 here's what's top of my mind. So everybody in, in America is talking about making of a murderer. Have you seen making of a murderer? I have not. It's this uh, documentary on Netflix, and I'm not going to uh, expound on it, but I do have a thought, and that is Brendan Dassey is innocent. Um, and speaking of Netflix, so I uh, received a uh, referral from a friend of mine that said, you have to watch this show on Netflix. It's not so much a show, but it's a documentary, and it's called Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon. Who is Shep Gordon? Uh, you will find out as soon as you watch it on Netflix. <laughs> right. And let me tell you, um, it is one of the most amazing stories. He is one of the most interesting people that I've ever seen captured on um, or in a documentary. Um, New Year's, the holiday in general, I think personally is one of the most overrated holidays. The most overrated. The most overrated holiday of all of the holidays. Um, I finally saw Star Wars The Force Awakens, and I have to say that it lives up to the hype. And my final point is um, now that it's, you know, January 2016, the dawn of a new year, right? The start of the professional golfing season. And something new this year, and this is a question for our, our humbled guest, anchor putting. Oh, no more anchor putting. Anchored putting. And and I I have always been against anchor putting and I'm glad that we will no longer see that on the tour. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, why why are you so against it? Because, you know, I uh, look at me. I've got a kind of a <clears throat> there's a lot to anchor, okay? You know, a putter too. Uh, I just adjustable heights, you know, tele, telescopic putter <laughs> yes, might work. Yes, I, I just think that um, if you're anchoring it to your chest, that 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 provides a slight advantage as opposed to holding the putter 
with your hands and your hands only. Mm. And we've all, the, 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 the Joe Blow golfer has done that, and yeah, there's a I difference. Um, I, I, I agree with that. Um, it does make a difference, and it does help in certain ways, but it is a skill, nonetheless, to learn how to do it. Um, I, I was involved in some, some high-level discussions on whether or not to, to accept the rule that the USGA wanted to, to put forth. And, and what, what rubbed a lot of us the wrong way was it was basically done because of optics. The, the USGA never, and, and I'm going to rant just a minute on the USGA, but I, I'm a big fan. Um, but uh, they, they never want to discuss it or talk about it until somebody won their tournament using it, and they didn't like it. So all of a sudden, you know, Webb Simpson won uh, the, the U.S. Open. Ernie Ells won the British Open. We, uh, uh, Adam Scott. Adam Scott won, and Keegan Bradley won the PGA. So it was like all of a sudden it was thrust in uh, right into their face, and they had to react. But they had had the opportunity 30, maybe even 40 years earlier to make a decision, and they decided that they did not think it was an advantage, that they didn't think it was a problem. So uh, you have trying to protect 15 or 20 guys on tour that make their living uh, using that method. They have perfected that skill. They're very good at it. Most of them did not go to it because it was a crutch. They went to it uh, because they felt like it made them a better putter when they were younger, and it was perfectly within the rules, and they had risen to a high level. I had a problem with them taking that away because they didn't like the way it looked. That's a good point. I didn't think of it that way. Um, so, so I think that's the reason that there was any pushback. So um, I, I, I think that it, this will go away just like anything else. You're going to see some guys struggle. You're going to see some potential um, new guys, you know, kind of jump out there that uh, because they're just going to take those guys' places, right? But uh, it'll it'll blow away. The, the 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 basic gist of it also is that the local country clubs around here right now golf is struggling as far as participation goes. the The professional game is very high. Yeah, but the participation, I figured it'd be an all time high. Well, no, participation's low. The, the 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 number of rounds are down. The National Golf Foundation would tell us that our game is in a in a kind of a sense of crisis. The golf courses are closing. Um, revenue is down from all the equipment sales. People just don't, whether they don't have the time to play or it's too expensive or it's too hard, whatever the reasons are, it's not cool enough. The, you know, our society is a right now society. They don't want to go learn a skill for two years and then have to go spend five hours to do it. They'd rather go hop on a dirt bike or a mountain bike and go get a 45-minute or an hour thrill. Or a hoverboard. Or hoverboard. Yeah. Godly. I hate, can, oh. I, I, I want to throw the hoverboards in the trash. Uh, you know, if you want to ruin your Christmas, listen to everybody else's tweets and 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 text messages about everything they got. My kids had a good Christmas. They, but my wife and I said no hoverboards because I, I think it's a fad. It's expensive and it'll these things blow up and yeah everything else. I think it'll go away. But every single one of our kids were disappointed because they didn't get a hoverboard. So, um, have you ever ridden one? By the way, no. It's the coolest thing in the world. Well, I'm I'm sure it is, but. After a while, don't you don't you think you go? Well, is this all it does? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd kind of like to move quicker, but uh, you know, back to the anchoring ban. I think that anything that we do right now to make the game harder and to give somebody a reason to not play is a bad thing. So, at at y'all's clubs, if you're an anchor putter 
and you decide to go sign up for the club championship or the member guest, and they say, can't play you anymore. can't play because of that, or your handicap isn't valid, that gives that person a reason to say, I'm not going to play. Yeah. And I, I think that's a bad thing, too. So really what I was in support of is if we had to, for optics, for the strength of the game, to make it look better, then let's ban it at the professional level, but let everybody else use this thing. Okay. Um, so that, that's where I am. That's my soapbox a little bit. I, um, you know, Tim Clark is a, is a friend of mine, and, and Tim has made a great living doing what he does. But the minute we, we agreed to, to accept this rule, he came and found me in a very professional, very polite manner. He asked, why would I do that? Because you, I, I feel like I've just had my, my, my throat cut, and now I'm going to slowly bleed out you know, yeah, kind of, kind of yeah. in public, right in front of everybody, while I, while I kind of die out, and uh, that was very personal and and, yeah. and very real to me. So, you know, my thought on it was, if if it really was such an advantage, everybody would do it. But like you said, it's a skill you've got to learn it, and people honed that skill and did it very well. And right, it's optics or no optics. So. Uh, I mean, I'm going to, uh, first of all, thank you for being here. Excited to have you. I want to kind of uh, start this off, though, from when you first started playing golf, high school, and, and go from there. So in high school, or even youth sports, did you play multiple sports? I did. Um, I grew up in West Texas. I was born in Dallas, but grew up in Abilene, moved back to Dallas in, uh, in high school, high, freshman year, Highland Park. And... Um, in Abilene, I played, I was a quarterback on the football team, point guard on the basketball team. I ran track. I, I know I don't look like a track guy, but I, I did the pole vault. I ran the 400-meter high hurdles. I mean... Uh, so there goes I, my I, other question of, did you excel in the no, other sports? No, I, di- I didn't excel, but, but there was a place for me there. Um, and that's a whole other issue in today's world. But there was a place for a kid to play every sport. And to do everything, and I did it. Um, golf was something I did. I was I was in love with it. Um, God gave me a great talent to hit a golf ball, but there weren't a lot of lessons and a lot of structure. And a lot, I just certainly didn't have a helicopter dad hanging over me uh, when I was when I was really young. I, I I did it because I loved it, and I did it in the summertime, you know, after baseball, and even mixed it in with tennis. You know, did tennis tournaments. When I moved to Dallas. Uh, I wanted to play baseball and wanted to play the other sports, but I was kind of encouraged that, you know, if you, 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 you got a talent here. I think you need to focus on this. Let's drop everything else. So how old were you we at that did. time? I was 15, 15, okay. 15. Um, but it's something that's lost in our world today is these kids playing all the sports and you have to learn how to be an athlete. You got to learn how to fall. You got to learn balance. You got to learn how to run, jump side to side forward, backwards. There's all these different planes of motion that you need to have. I think we're seeing a lot of kids getting hurt, you know, at the high school and college level, these freak injuries. Even my son, my 13-year-old, plays lacrosse. He's getting these weird injuries that um, with knees or something else that just ache and, and hurt him. And it's because he's not doing things like, you know, tennis on the hard court, or he's not doing wrestling, or you know, the other stuff that kids do. He, he plays football and and lacrosse, but um, you know it's not quite enough. You gotta, you gotta. I, I think it's helpful to do everything. So, and at what point did you know? Uh, you know, when did you become aware? I'm pretty damn good at this game of golf. I, I 
I don't know. I, 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 th- I think maybe I was a little bit delusional. I think everybody around me realized maybe I had more talent than I did. But uh, when I was a junior in high school, um, all of a sudden playing in some tournaments, uh, I, I played national events and got invited to play in national events from age 13 on, but I never thought it was a big deal. That was just kind of my peer group. I didn't think much of it. I'd come home and go straight to something else. Um, but all of a sudden, when I was a beginning of my junior year, I'd look over to the sidelines and it wasn't empty anymore. There would be college coaches or, you know, somebody standing to the side with an Arizona hat or a, you know, an Oklahoma hat. And, and they would go talk to my dad or something else. I started realizing, well, man, maybe I can can do something. But I bet even, uh, you know, I, I kind of went to college uh, on a scholarship to the University of Texas. The, Jimmy Clayton was the coach. And, and admittedly, I was the number two guy in his recruiting class. Uh, you're not allowed to recruit a lot. Justin Leonard was the, was the top dog. He was the, the prized cow, if you want to call it that. And I was, my coach even told me, you're a diamond in the rough. You're, a, you're an unrefined talent. You've never really applied yourself. We'll see what you can become. That kind of thing. Um, but until I started having success my sophomore year in college, I don't think I ever realized that maybe I could actually really be good at this. You know, I, yeah, I can hit a ball further than everybody else, and that got me the scholarship, but I think I can actually play. And so that really didn't happen until college. Wow. And, well, and, and you had a good college career, three-time All-American. That's, yeah. that's pretty impressive. We had, uh, we had a great group of guys, and, and we had a great team. Uh, back then, uh, the University of Texas program especially, we just feasted on the, on the Texas talent. And so uh, we knew all these guys growing up playing junior golf together, so it was very natural for us to all come together. Uh, we were uh, a tight-knit group, and, and in my five years, I don't think we were ever outside the top five in the country. We, we never won national championship, but we lost two of them by one shot each. Wow. So... We were good, and, and we were way up there. We got used to performing at a very, very high level and uh, produced a lot of All-Americans, and it was a, a very contagious atmosphere to be successful. And uh, Now, did it, those other Texas alums, golf, like Tom Kite, Ben Crenshaw, yeah. were they around you all at that time? Did they help mentor or do anything? Yeah, you know, not much. They would, um, you know, a couple of times a year we'd have a, a lunch or a, you know, or a dinner or something like that where they would come and talk to us. They always made themselves available, but we were all a little bit too intimidated. Um, You know, right after when I turned pro and started to play in practice rounds, I got invited. Uh, Justin was already out on tour ahead of me, and one of my best friends, he kind of pulled me under his wing, and uh, we played a lot with Tom Kite. And so I got to know Tom then, and I knew Ben, but only recently, over the last five or six years, have I really gotten to know Ben because of the Trinity Forest Project. Um, and I've been involved with that, and he's been involved. So I've gotten to know him as a person. He's kind of past his prime plan, but obviously grew up, you know, worshiping his, yeah. uh, what, who he is. And, uh, and, and my heroes in golf were pretty small. I had Byron Nelson was a hero, uh, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Watson, you know, so... And I was extremely lucky. I got to to meet all of them and and form relationships with them. But Ben was later. So what what happened? Your you referenced your sophomore year mm. in terms of realizing that you you know are a, 
fantastic player. What happened that uh, year that made you realize that? I, I think it was uh, – I, I, I had a good time in college. I, I wasn't 100% focused just on golf. So I was at the fraternity parties. I was uh, at the sorority parties. We were doing stuff all the time. I, I, I wasn't taking it seriously as much as I should have. But, you know, every time my coach would, would say, uh, you're, you're not producing, uh, all I had to do was kind of put my head down and, and go to work. And, and when I hit the accelerator, I, I got some, got some good stuff out of it. So I realized there was a lot to, a lot there. And, and all I needed was a little bit of pushing from my coach. And I went from a guy who was a fifth guy on the team my, my freshman year to make an All-American. And I kind of thought, wow, well, I can, if I, if I apply myself at all, I might, I might, be actually be able to do something. But that's when I kind of realized that there's more in the tank that maybe I'd given myself credit for. Was it around that time that you got the nickname Bush? <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, <laughs> no, Bush was uh, was a bad episode when I was a freshman in high school. Oh, it's high school. Um, okay. Yeah, freshman in high school. You don't have to go into it if you don't want to. Yeah, well, thank you. It was... Uh, <laughs> um, you know, most people know, but it was a bad decision that I made that without understanding the uh, full consequences of what we put in our bodies at that time, what would, you know, what would happen? And I took a nap in a, in a poor choice <laughs> it's, it's, spot. So. Should we save this story for the podcast or the Insignificant Others podcast after hours? <laughs> yeah, you want this one to be on late. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. You know, most of my kids know what it is, but it was a bad choice. Kids make them. Uh, I learned from it, and, uh, and we moved on. So my parents were cool about it. Uh, my friends on the golf team were actually the ones that gave me the nickname Bush, and, That's funny. and it stuck with me for a long time. That's funny. Yeah, that's hilarious. So uh, now I heard a story, and I don't know if it's true, that after college you weren't going to be a pro. No. And was it Justin that said, dude, you need to come out here? No, uh, it it was a lot of people. It wasn't just Justin. but So Justin got out of school a year before I did, and and he went straight to the tour. and, And only maybe three or four people had done that. In the history, without having to go to Q school, they had gone right out and made enough money. Um, I, I had always compared myself to him. Now he, he, I didn't, but I didn't think it was that big of a deal getting on tour. And um, I wasn't as good as he was, but he also he wasn't exactly tearing it up at the time. He he made it on tour, but he he finished like one twenty fifth right that year. And I thought, well, if he can barely make it, then I, what what shot really do I have? And I was a little bit burned out and and I was uh dating and engaged to who, my my wife now Allison who we dated all through high school and I really just kind of wanted to be a normal guy and wanted to to be at home I didn't want to travel I didn't know if the grind was for me but mostly it was I was a little bit scared and intimidated about putting myself out there and having a chance to fail so I went to work in commercial real estate for a year um Bill Duval gave me a job at Lincoln Property Company and had me kind of slated towards doing some development stuff, being able to use my golf and be able to use some of my other skills to, to be successful in that, in that realm, in the development realm. And um, halfway through the first year, he formed a, a partnership with a golf company, Mark Brooks 
and his partner, a guy named Bert Bain. And Mark had just won the PGA. And uh, so three days a week, I had to drive to Fort Worth and sit in their office and act like I knew what I was talking about <laughs> when it came to golf courses. And uh, Mark would come in every morning and say, bring your golf clubs. We're, we're going to go play this afternoon. And after about five or six rounds with Mark, he was the PGA champion. I was beating him. And he sat me down one day and was like, you're making a fool of yourself and you're making a big mistake in your life if you don't go try this. So, yeah, and Mark Brooks is a calloused guy. He's a tough guy. He's a um, not the most friendly person in the world, but we had a great relationship and he was very nurturing to me. So that kind of stoked this, this fire. And after a couple of months, I uh, was hosting a bunch of people out at the Nelson and Colonial and I'm watching people walk up and down the fairway. I'm watching Stuart Sink and Tim Heron and you know, Omar Uresti and these guys that I've considered peers and equals, and they were doing it. And Tim Heron walked over on 18th tee at the Byron Nelson and goes, what the hell are you doing over there? Wow. You need to be over here. So there was just another reinforcement. Yeah. So after a month or so, I went to my wife and said, I need to go back outside. This uh, being in an office is not for me. And everybody was happy about it. I went to, to, uh, to Bill Duval and he said, well, shit, what took you so long? I've been I've been trying to push you out of this office for, for nine months. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to help you out. We're going to get a group together. We're going to get you some money so you can go play. I want you to give it three years. And, and if it doesn't work, you come back, you got your job back. So I had time, I had money and I had a fallback. And most of these guys that when they go take this chance in life, they don't have that. You know they're 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 dirt poor. They're they're uh, they're scared to death. They they don't know what to do. Everybody thinks it's the Jason Days and the Jordan Spieths that yeah come out up here. It's not for every one of those guys. There's a hundred true that are that are fighting their ass off just to try to make it and just try to get a taste of it. And so the words of these guys that encouraged me to get over my fear and go give it a shot. That's incredible. Well, you talked about the grind in. in you know, an amateur golfer like myself, I, I, I glamorize PGA professionals and the tour and everything. But early in your career, you were playing 30 or more tournaments a year. Yeah. That's got to be a complete grind. Talk to us a little bit about the grind and the routine and, and kind of the less than glamorous side of it. Well, a lot of people just see the guys that are finishing top 10, top 20 on the money list every year or the top 30 in the world. And, and obviously we all know the kind of lifestyle that Tiger Woods and Ernie Els and Phil Mickelson and Roy McIlroy and Jordan Spieth and all those guys live the money they make. But, uh, and, and they are, they're able to do that because their talent's so high and they're, and they're in all the most prestigious events in the world, biggest world rankings, biggest money. And, uh, for the rest of the guys, you're working every day, every week, trying to make 95% of your money and only 5% of your tournaments. So you, you spend a lot of time just treading water, trying to get better, refining skills, trying to get over the bunker issue or whatever it is, and so that you can take advantage of it. When, it, when you do hit, you have to be out there. Right, right. You can't, you can't, you're not going to hit it when you're at home. So uh, most of us play 20... I. I that's probably a little bit incorrect. The first five, six, seven years of my career, I probably played 26 or 27. And when you're 25, 26 years old, that's no big deal. 
But when you get older and you start having kids yeah. and you develop a little bit of scar tissue in the brain or whatever, you're, you're not quite as fearless as you once were. Um, it's harder to have those great weeks. So 25 weeks became 30, became 31. I had a stretch there from 2004 to 2007, four years that I think I spent over or close to 1,200 nights in a hotel in those four years. And that's just, that's tournaments, that's corporate appearances, that's, that's, you know, international events, the stuff you have to do, that's the entertaining, that's the the sponsorship obligations. It's a lot of time away from your family. And, and if you can make it work, it's fantastic. But when you start to slip a little bit, you question whether or not that's worth it. So what happens when we get older is we all decide we want to pare down how much we play. And so you see Steve Stricker, for example, who's knocking it down. Uh, Justin Leonard's knocking it down this year. Mickelson's knocking it down. These smart guys that, uh, that are uber talented that can make it through like Tiger did, only playing 16 or 17 weeks a year, then you, you kind of keep some in the tank. But it's not, um, you know, everybody thinks it's all this wonderful stuff, but there's a lot of time on the range, a lot of time in the gym, a lot of time alone in hotel rooms, and it just kind of gets to you. Yeah. So, so talk about the time that it takes to maintain, you know, a professional level of play. How many hours a day are you practicing? And then, you know, you know I think, you know, you talked about working out. I mean, that became in vogue, of course. I'm sure it may not have been the first time that this has ever happened, but when Tiger came into prominence, you know, he, you know, he was working out and right. he was lifting weights and it was almost like the first time that any golfer of, uh, ever had done that. But what's, what's the time commitment? What's the, what's the amount well, of time you put into that? Yeah, there were guys doing it before. Uh, Gary Player has been a huge advocate of physical fitness for 60 years, but um, Tiger raised the bar. He wasn't just simply better than most of us. He was, you know, miles ahead of us. And so everybody started thinking, well, if I'm going to get close to that, what do I have to do? So, you know, the personal trainer thing came into effect. Uh, You know, Davis Love and a lot of these guys started traveling sports psychologists, Bob Rotella, who's a, a founder of that movement. So all of us started having sports psychologists. Uh, We all had nutritionists. We all had our coaches with us all the time. So, uh, you know, a normal day wasn't just get up in the morning, stroll to the course, hit 20 balls, go play, and then go fart around. It was, you know, very structured to where you were, you know, you had a physical therapist working on you, trying to keep stuff loose, trying to keep the pain away. You had a trainer that was trying to strengthen everything. Try to activate your glutes. Yeah, you got to activate the glute, activate your core, <laughs> yeah. you know, crap, all, the, all that stuff. But um you know, then you had your teacher with you for a couple hours on the range working on your stuff, and then a practice round's five hours, and then from there back to the range. So you might leave your hotel room at 6.30 in the morning, but you're not getting back until 6 at night. Um, there's a lot more that goes into it than just simply going and, and playing golf, and that, that's, that's a problem. We, we make it harder. Than what it is. Yeah, we make it harder than we should, but that was because of what we saw as those guys – up there. So did you have a sports psychologist? I did. So did you lay on a black couch while <laughs> your psychologist had a... No, you know. but you know what? For about a year, this guy was on the road all the time, and he would come to my hotel room two hours before my tea time, and we would do mental exercises like hypnosis and, and calming and breathing exercises. 
you know, just stuff like that just to get off and then uh, just to get, you know, your, your day started off right. Uh, and then after, you had to have somebody there to help you kind of, you know, scrape away some of the residue of the day to tell you, you know, what was pattern, what was the outlier, what should you be thinking about, what should you not be. Gosh darn it, people love you, Harrison. People love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. But I think the best ones are the ones that are right in the mirror, right, when they tell you, yeah, you know what, you're not putting and chipping well, your feelings are real, you need to spend some more time on it, and here's how we do it. So it was a lot of strategy. It wasn't just, you know, blowing smoke. It was, yeah. you know, it was it was productive stuff. Uh, but there's a lot that goes into it. And then when you come home, you know, of course, you want to spend time with your kids, but also you got to go to the range. you got to go to work. you got to make changes. You've got to be in the gym again. you got to be with another physical therapist who's working on a different set of issues. You know, so the staff becomes actually pretty large. And uh, so your off weeks then weren't really even off weeks. And so you, you hit on several topics I want to kind of dig a little yeah. deeper into. Uh, we talked about the working out in, yeah. in, in Tiger and so many other pros right now exercise a ton. I mean, you, you look at the body shapes on the PGA Tour now and 30 years ago, and it's completely different. Yes. Are, in, in your opinion, I'll put it this way, so we're not indicting anybody or, or putting you out there. Do you think that performance-enhancing drugs are prevalent on the tour? No. No, I don't. I think that um, I think that maybe eight years ago, before it was illegal, right when this science was kind of coming out, I bet you had some guys that were dabbling. Um, I don't want it to be wide, for you all to think it's widespread. Um, and when I say, so I bet there was 10 or 15, uh, there might've been one or two that were a very, very high level doing the, you know, the, the blood treatments and the, and having the guys from Canada come in. Uh, but, uh, I, I think most of it was just guys maybe with HGH or some, uh, you know, beta recover. blockers. Yeah. 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 Are, are beta blockers legal? Beta now? blockers are illegal. They're illegal now? They're illegal. Uh, pretty much everything now is illegal. Um, are not illegal. It's against our WADA rules, the World Anti-Doping Association, which has been driven by the Olympics. The tourists desire to be in the Olympics and all the heat coming down from Congress mm-hmm. is why they decided to put testing in place. And uh, by, by the way, beta blockers are awesome. I, don't, I had a friend who worked with some golfers. I had to give a speech in front of a bunch of people. And she said, oh, take beta blockers. But, you know, I know these golfers take it. And this was... A decade ago, yeah, and it, it it doesn't do this, but this is what it feels like it does. It blocks your body's ability to absorb adrenaline. So yeah. as you're standing up in front of a whole bunch of people, and you know your hands start shaking and stuff, normally that doesn't happen with beta blockers. Yeah. Mm. So I've I've gotten a prescription from my doctor, and anytime I have to give a speech in front of a bunch of people where you get nervous, yeah, it, it's a difference maker. Wow. Yeah, but that that's uh, a part of the game and part of the pressure of of performing um, at a high level that people have to learn to get over. Some, you know, tried to tried to medicate through it or tried to find the way through it. Most didn't. I certainly don't want to indict the group, um, you know. But when we started our testing, I, I don't I don't know if our testing really catches people uh, more than it is a deterrent. Nobody wants to be labeled a cheater. Nobody wants to walk in that locker room and see those guys, 
and have to know that they think that you're a cheater. Still an honorable game. It's an honorable game. It still is. There are still guys that don't care. I'm not trying to say that we're we're purer than snow, but there there are people I'm sure that are doing something. I think the biggest concern we have right now may be HGH uh, because our testing. And oh, by the way, and and I'm not a doctor, and I know very little about this, but from what I've read, the benefits of HGH are tremendous, and there's not that much in side effects that are negative. So it's almost like they should say, why don't we go ahead and make HGH legal, not just in golf, but in all sports? Just ask Peyton Manning's wife. Wow. I don't know that story. (laughs) (laughs) You had to go there. Al Al Jazeera. (laughs) Um, uh, HGH, whether or not it's good for you or or not, it's – you know, it's against the rules. Yeah. But right? my point is, let's right. make it, let's make that. Because the injuries you suffered, the injuries of professional football players, if it helps them recover faster, yeah. right? why not go ahead and do it? Well, because I think it sends a bad message yes. to, to the kids and to the college-age kids that uh, you can just dope your way around certain problems. And there's no doubt that performance-enhancing agents, whatever they are, um, they are finding that it causes issues in people later in life. Whether it was the stresses that they put their body through, through it, or due to the drug itself, yeah. I don't know. The ethical issue that I have with it is what happens when you take it away? You know, if, you, if, if, if you're taking HGH and you just all of a sudden just quit it cold turkey and your body's used to getting it from something other than making it, what happens to your body when you stop? You know, so... Uh, you know, we see guys on tour who uh, maybe did or maybe didn't. When the testing came along, all of a sudden there were a lot of injuries coming along. Is that because all of a sudden they weren't getting right. what they what they needed? Or is it just age? You know, I don't think we'll ever know. So I, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I've, now that I'm not playing much and as much as I hurt, I've, I've considered it. But I need to remove myself as a professional golfer before I go down that road, just from an ethical point of view. Um, but there's a lot of people that have told me that HGH is in 15 years might be just like Advil. You know, it might be right. so accepted that that you just take a pill and it helps you. But I think it's expensive and yeah, and and there's different ways. But um, right now, if I'm not going to play, I want to feel better. So yeah. I'm open to things, but uh, I don't know which way I would go. So let, let's go. Let's take a, a small step back. Um, you you are uh, you made the decision to jump back into golf. You wanted to become Ooh. a professional, and one of the things that you're known for is your performance uh, during Q School. Ah, yeah. So, tell us about Q School. Tell us about the the, the round. Um, the what the the. 59, 59 at La Quinta. Round at La Quinta. Yeah, yeah. So what, what's Q School like? Yeah. What, what, uh, what culminated in that? that well, Q School, Q School when you're younger isn't as scary as when you're older. You know, you would think that it's the opposite, right, because you have the wisdom of, of experience. But um, when you're younger, you don't realize what it means. It's a, it's a 10 to 20x increase of, of the money that you can make if you make it through uh, right. Q school, right? If you don't make it through, you're going back and playing the web.com. And web.com's average purses are four, five hundred thousand. The tours are six million. So, 
you just do the math, right? So, and if you're used to making that kind of money and all of a sudden you have a bad year, you have to go back, you're scared to death. And, and I had some interesting circumstances going into that Q school week. I'd had a bad year and not played well. I was really struggling with my confidence and, 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 my, and my hip, my left hip that's always bothered me, was really flared up. And my third boy who had been born, um, you know, four or five months earlier was having a kidney issue and he had a, a reconstructive kidney surgery scheduled uh, about a week before I was supposed to go to Q school. And I was, so here I was hurting. I had a child that was hurting, had a lot going on at home. I knew that there was no way I could play and perform. I actually called the tour and said, and asked them if I could get a medical extension and not play in Q school this year and put it off to next year. Uh, I got too much going on. Now we have a something in place called a family emergency medical. They didn't have it at the time. They told me no. They said, if you don't go play, you're out for the year. So I didn't touch a club for about 10 days and uh, went and got a cortisone injection in the hip two days before I went, and I never played more than nine holes of a practice round and was kind of struggling, treading water the first couple of days, and my teacher, Randy Smith, who's you know the head pro yeah. or teacher at Royal Oaks and been my mentor for many, many years, walked out, and he said, I don't know what's going on. I can tell you're hurting. Stand up. Stand up. Be strong to the ball. Stand up. Go play. And somehow putts started going in, and I went from, you know, maybe 20th, 25th place to having like a four- or five-shot lead after that day. And I, I've never felt that before. I, I hit 30, 40-foot putts that where they were a foot off the putter, and I'd walk over to my caddy and say, yep, I made another one, you know, and boom. Ten seconds later, it would finally drop in. It was just one of those feelings where you just you couldn't miss. And so I and, was it the putting that was the difference. Well, and I struck the ball so well that tip to get up and lift your chest and get taller where the club can swing uninhibited. All of the effort that I was trying to do was fruitless before because you crunched over and body gets in the way. It's got to move in different angles to get out of the way. He was telling me just let the club move on plane, get out of the way. And um, I, I drove it incredibly. My iron shots were so crisp and clear, but I was so clear-minded, too, that nothing fazed me, nothing bothered me, nothing. I even, on that day, I, uh, I had to get up and down on a par five and, uh, and, and missed about a five-footer. So it could have been a 57 you know, really. And I hung it on the lip on the last hole. So theoretically, it could have been a 56. Is, is that the so, round of your life? Under the situation, under the circumstances, yes. Wow. Yeah, that was the round of my life. Um, the pressure was so great that, um, and I was so focused on the ultimate goal of getting out of Q school that it didn't really hit home what I had done because I had to go play. I had to go play two more rounds. Yeah. We weren't done. And if I go shoot a 75 the next day, all that work was undone. Right. So I was so on guard that I did an interview and sat down in front of the Golf Channel, and and Kelly Tillman and Brandel Chambly all said, I can't believe how, how calm you are. I said, well, I haven't won anything yet. We're not done yet. The goal is to get out. Yeah. i got to provide for my family. So I walked off that table, went back to the putting green, did my drills, and and moved on the next day. Ended up winning the tournament by you know, seven or eight shots, but I was just so ginned, so ginned in. The last, the last day, I was actually 
10 under after 12 holes again. No, I'm sorry, 9 under after 12. So I had a chance to do it again. Wow. And my caddy looked up and said, you know, you can calm down. You're, you're like 14 <laughs> shots or 12 shots wow. clear of the field. Wow. You can calm down. So, and so I kind of, you know, let a few slip. What, but, was, what was your first professional tournament? My first professional tournament was a mini tour event, a Lone Star event in Beaumont, Texas. And this is, I guess this is, bef- I guess, PGA tournament. My first PGA tournament event was... After um, Q School. After Q School. So, well, so I went to Q School in 1997, okay. right out of Lincoln Property Company, and made it to the finals and got on the, what was then the Nike Tour, now the, now the web.com. And... Um, the powers that be at the salesmanship club in Dallas, um, and, and thank God for them for doing it, gave me a sponsor pick um, as a mini tour guy to come in and play, you know, a local local boy. And uh, so the Byron Nelson was my first really PGA Tour event. Interestingly, Tiger played that week, and he was two groups behind me. And uh, I kind of had my head down, was trying to get ready, and, I, and we walked up to the first tee, and back then Tiger commanded crowds that were 15, 20 people deep, yeah. like an entire hole. And I was two groups in front of Tiger. And I got up to the number one tee, and I was trying to be calm and relaxed. And I looked up and saw 8,000 people, maybe 10,000 people, <laughs> wrap number one. And, I mean, you couldn't have gotten a grease BB. Uh, I was so nervous. I was so tight. So I teed up a driver as high as I could so I didn't top it in front of God and everybody and just – yeah. Hit one straight up in the air just to get out of the way, but I mean, I was about to throw up and was so nervous. But it it was a it was an experience that changed my life. Wow, that's so. incredible. Yeah, I, I don't know how you guys do that. I played in one uh, pro am, the LA Open, Riviera, which yeah, was awesome. What a, what a cool place. It was, it was so nice. I, it was so fortunate to be able to play. But they announced me. We teed off on number ten, mm. and no crowds like you're talking about, but maybe 50, 75 people hanging around. Yeah. They announced from Dallas, Texas, Brett Featherston. And I get up there and my knees are knocking like crazy. It's just, oh my goodness, get me off this tee box as fast as possible. So right. number 10 is a short par four. One so of the greatest holes in golf. I hit a, a three wood right down the middle, about 75, 80 yards. <laughs> <laughs> And, and sprinted off that tee box mm-hmm. as fast as I could. So yeah. to that to that point, Harrison, have you ever? I think every uh, hacker, like Brett and I, um, right. have you ever been in a tournament event and you've just duffed it? Yes. So uh, players championship, my my second time. So my third year, um, I got paired with Tom Pertzer. Uh, y'all may not know who Tom Pertzer is, but. Absolutely a, a, a prince of a guy, prettiest swing you've ever seen, and Ian Wisnum. And uh, Ian was had, had won the Masters a few years earlier, and and I was so nervous, and they got the grandstands, and and I was kind of known as a as a long hitter, and people were, were talking about it, and, you know, I'm starting to believe my own legend. And uh, get on the first tee, and they, they call Tom Pertzer, and he hits a beautiful shot down the middle. And Ian Wisdom, and he rips one. Everybody screams and claps. And they say, now Dallas, Texas, Harrison Fraser. And I thought, well, I'm a big hitter. I'm going to hit three wood off this tee. And I pulled it back and just dead 
Cole topped it about 30 yards off the tee. And everybody went, hi, y'all. <laughs> and there, you know, you hear like, you know, somebody's grandma from the back, you know, kind of, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, one of these. Uh, but it was probably the most embarrassing moment, of you know, of my golfing career. Yeah. Um, How many holes did it take to kind of rein it back in? It, it, it well, just one. You know, yeah, just one. I, I actually walked up 30 yards off the tee and hit the same three-wood out of the rough and scooted it up about 60 yards short of the green and got up and down from my par. And I was calmed down, you know, by then. And everybody laughed about it. You know, Pertzer walked up, put his arm around me after I hit my second three-wood. And, uh, you know, it was, was very nurturing, I guess, and just kind of, you know, said, it's okay, kid, don't worry about it. Everybody screws up. You know, but the most important part when you're trying to perform in front of people, especially in golf, is that is to try to realize that these people are not here just to watch you, and I, they're here to watch the event. They're here to they're they're there to be part of it. And so, once you accept that, you'll feel the pressure because you want to perform, but you don't feel the pressure of everybody watching you. And it's actually easier with a huge crowd than it is with that fifty or seventy. And kind of get you lost know. in the crowd. Yeah, you get used to it. That white noise that happens like Phoenix. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, that back nine is unlike anything else you that, can ever experience in sport. Part three canyon is crazy. Just play, without people in the stands, it's crazy. I've played it. So and back in the old days, before they tried to temper it in, there were no grandstands. It was all college kids up on the hills. And it was like walking into a frat party. And they would all get quiet right before you hit. And right, right as the ball left the club face it sounded like a jet engine it was so loud and your heart rate would go from about 95 to 180 and and you know boom 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 you, and you're just praying to god you hit a good shot and if let, you hit a bad shot they'd boo you yeah they'll I, let you I, know. oh they'll let you know i've been called uh i've been called a couple of bad names from people in the crowds after hitting bad shots there but at the same time if you hit a good one they'll love you for it I've I've been witness to the Byron Nelson many times, including the pro am, and and every time I've seen it, you know, it's very entertaining, you know, from an amateur perspective, but but thinking of it from a, a working man's perspective, understanding that that's your job, that's your craft, I can't help but think that that is somewhat of a beatdown. So my question to you is, what do professional golfers truly think of 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 having to play in the pro am? Oh, I think it's wide-ranging. Um, if you're a personable guy, sure. you know, if you like people, um, it certainly helps. You know, I've always tried to get into their round, you know, to try to help them. It makes it go by quicker. Um, not, not, that it, not that it drags on, but, but it makes the, the experience more enjoyable, not just for them, but for you as well. Um, but I always looked at it as that if I'm in the pro-am, it means that I did something good the year before sure. and these people want me. So it's a privilege. Sure. Uh, it, it, you still get jaded a little bit, but you, you, as a professional, you try to make your, try, try to make your mark on somebody in a positive way, right. try to help their caddy or their kid talk to somebody, right? You know, yeah. but just there's try nobody, to be nice. There's nobody following Brett and I around at our day jobs. Well, right. I mean, yeah, true. But, but you knew that going into it. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we, we, that, this is part of it. None of us want to be playing on the mini tours where there's nobody no, there. Sure. You're getting paid all that money to play in front of people and to play yeah. in front of a TV camera. So you just accept it or move on. Right. You either, you either get with it or you don't. And, um, I've always, I, I like having the people around. I've, I've, I've always thought it's 
uh, I, I, a little bit of a show off, right? You know, hey, watch this. You know, you, I'm, I'm over here yeah, in the trees. I'm better than you. Yeah, I'm better than yeah. you. <laughs> you know, but, you know, if you hit a bad tee shot in the trees, there's nothing better than having 30 people sitting around there thinking, oh, he's dead. He doesn't have anything. And that little sick guy in your head says, oh, yeah, watch this. I'll pull it off. Yeah. And I mean, I've even had my caddy before years ago look at somebody and say, he's only doing this because y'all are here. <laughs> and if he pulls it off, you've seen the shot of the week, right? And, and sometimes you pull it off. And when you do, you know, you kind of look at the guy and point at him and they respond back yeah. and it's fun. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can go the other way where you don't want it and don't want anybody to look at you and you don't want anybody to acknowledge you and just let me hide. But that's not healthy. It's not fun. So, um, you, you know, let's, I'd, I'd like to fla- flash forward a little bit. You, you, you had a, a, a long and lengthy career on the PGA tour by, by average standards for sure. Mm. Um, take us to the time when you won your first tournament. Um, what that meant for you, the, the emotions that, that were rushing through your body. I mean, right. that must have been an incredible right. experience for you. Um, this isn't a religion show, but that it, was a God. That was a God thing. A hundred percent, it was a God thing. Um, I was at the lowest point of my career six months prior, when I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to play again. Uh, I had had shoulder surgery. I'd had hip surgery. Um, I, I just had a lot going on, a lot of pulls and demands and time from from family wanting to be there, and was really struggling. And I only had two tournaments left. And I had to make a lot of money to, to keep my exempt status. And halfway through the second round that week, I was doing my same thing. I was struggling, fighting with it, and, and just not letting the game come to me. And I remember thinking, okay, uh, God, I'm not going to fight it anymore. If you want me to be a golfer, you'll show me I need to be a golfer. If I'm not going to be a golfer, that's fine. I'll, but... You know, don't jack with me anymore. Don't get me close and have me fall. Don't make me feel good for a little while, then have it hurt again. If you want me to be a golfer, then show me. And all of a sudden, this, you know, the clouds kind of lifted, so to speak. And I started hitting good shots, and I had no idea what was going on. But he gave me that gift for that win, and it wasn't uh, without effort at the end. Robert Carlson and I kind of separated ourselves. And it, where it was a two-horse race, and we realized it on the back nine on Sunday. So we got a, both got a little tight. Both of us were trying to win. Robert's been a very accomplished player for many, many years, a top 50 guy in, in the world. He's older than I am. And he needed it too, right? He needed that win to validate his career, um, not just to people but to himself. And so we both got a little nervous and both got a little tight. And I had a bad shot on 18 that happened to get us back into a playoff. And well, I was about to say, your, your approach shot on 18 goes yeah. in the water. Yeah. At that point, you're going, okay, God, you're messing with me. Well, again. no, no, no. <laughs> I knew that one was on me. Um, you know, that wasn't any kind of a God thing there at all. But Robert had hit a shot to the right side of the fairway and then up to the right of the green. I had a one-shot lead. I knew that at best he was going to make a par, and it was a tough up and down. All I had to do was hit that eight iron to the center of the green. But my tendency throughout my entire career when I feel pressure is to get just a little bit quick at the top and get slightly over and pull. And I struck that ball beautifully. The thoughts were fine. I just pulled it. 
and it hit right on top of the bank, only about 12 feet short of, or 12 feet left of the flag, and rolled down into the water. It had happened earlier in my career a couple of times, and I thought, oh, God, not again, you know, not again. But I get, gathered myself still thinking that if I get this up and down, it's a bogey, I still might win. Right. Because he might make bogey. That's a hard up and down. So even though there was a potentially disastrous mistake at the worst possible time, you get over it quickly if you're, if you're thinking properly. And you instantly go to, okay, I screwed it up, but what's next? Okay? And that's a metaphor, I think, for, for anything, right? So I, I did my best. It didn't work out. What do I do now? So I got it up and down. Thankfully, uh, Robert hit a, hit a poor tee shot on our third playoff hole, and I hit probably the best tee shot of my life. And I had 85 yards, and he had almost 200. Wow. And, and I got him. I got him, right? I got him beat at that point. And I kind of knew it and played a conservative shot, made my par and won. But it was uh, an instant, like you talk about taking that gorilla off your back, yeah. right? I didn't just take him, off, take him off my back. I mean, I took him off and slammed him on the green and, and stomped on him. Uh, it, it, it felt so good to get that done. I needed it. I needed it personally. My family needed it. My coaches needed it. It was for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah a lot of people. And Allison got on a plane that Sunday and came out. She missed. She missed it. She, no way. She missed it. So I had qualified for the U.S. Open the week before out at uh, Dallas Athletic Club. And they, she and the kids were always coming to the U.S. Open. And she had asked me the night before, you're playing in the leader group. Do you want us to come to Memphis? And I said, no, flights are bad. It's going to cost a couple of thousand dollars for you all to get there to change the flights and then a couple of thousand more to get us there. Just kind of let me, let me do this thing. So um, it was time for her to go to the airport with all the kids and right in the back nine. And they went through security when the playoffs started. And they, she had all the kids in a bar in DFW airport watching it when they got the call, you know, like last call for the flight and not knowing what was going to happen. She had to go get on the plane. So she's scuffling through the plane with all the kids putting stuff in the bags and her phone's blowing up. People are calling and, and saying, Hey, he's got a good shot. He's hit a good shot. He said, okay, it's all looking good. And right as they're taxiing away, the flight attendant had come and told her, put your phone away. And the very last minute before she put it away, it rings from a friend of ours here in town, and all the, all the girl said was, he won. He won. And Allison turned her phone off, and then That's the kids awesome. all started crying. You know, it was cute. All the people around her were kind of like, what's going on? What in the hell just happened? Yeah. You know, wondering if somebody had died or, you yeah, know, what, what's wrong? And they started telling the story. Then everybody in the plane started clapping, and everybody was getting happy and giving the kids high fives. And, and so even though she missed it and wasn't able to be there, which is a dream for all of us, she... Yeah. You know, has her own special story. That's that's incredible. Yeah, that's, it was cool. I kind of get goosebumps still talking about that. So I remember it vividly because I was in Newport, Rhode Island. Susie and I were there, and that was the same weekend the Mavericks won the championship in the NBA. Yeah, and we were in a bar for way too long, watched golf, and then watched basketball. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, so after we won that, a friend of mine from Dallas had come up and. and and got a buddy of his in Little Rock, and they had driven over. So a lot of people think that after you win a tournament, you know, it's all this celebration and parties. For the most part, 
you go in, you sign a bunch of flags, you do some interviews, you say a thank you to the volunteers, and then you're out. And you just go back to your hotel by yourself and and move on to the next week. But uh, but these guys were there, and they took me out to dinner, and we had a great steak dinner, and and were able to watch the we were able to watch the Mavericks win the championship. It was a great day, so all the, all the way around. So um, that's incredible. I, I think that there's lots of questions um, we have just just generally speaking about the tour itself. So, um, who, in your opinion, has the sweetest golf swing now on tour? I think Adam Scott's got the got the best golf swing um, uh, from a technical point of view. Uh, the prettiest golf swing to watch if if all my kids are going to play golf and I could say pattern it after this person, it would be Louis Oosthuizen. Wow! Really. Absolutely. Uh, as far as balance and rhythm and timing and on plane, I just think he's he's a he's a beautiful golfer to watch. Rory McIlroy's got the most powerful, I think, in Jason Day. But Jason looks like he's trying to be powerful. You know, he hits it hard. Um, the player that's got the most moxie is Jordan Spieth by far. He just this has the it factor. He just he's got the it factor. What's it like playing around with somebody that let's just say that you're not so friendly with, or you just don't get along with well we're all professionals out there so you you just kind of let it go um personalities are not always going to match sure. but i'm i'm pretty agreeable and i think i'm pretty easy to get along with so i i've had very very few problems but you know you get somebody like a uh and i certainly don't mean to say anything bad about them but you know somebody like a bubba watson who's fairly mercurial and you mix him with somebody like a Roy Sabatini or somebody who's also mercurial, they're, they're going to clash. Yeah, right. Eventually it's going to happen. Um, I, I haven't had that experience. Uh, I've, I've certainly had people that I've played with that have bothered me, but never had an issue. Okay. So did you help move the uh, boulder in in I, Phoenix in 1999? I didn't help move the boulder, but I was there. the ball. I was protecting the ball. Yes. Yeah, yeah they're very good. I was, um, um, so a, a gentleman named Orlando Pope was the rules official at the time, and Tiger had hit his drive to the left. This was at Phoenix in the last round, playing with Rocco Mediate. And, um, and there's another interesting story about that I'll, I'll get to if we can touch on race Absolutely. and on tensions and something more political but um, uh, Tiger hit it to the left, and he walks over, and he kind of waves me over. And I said, what's the, what's the problem? And he said, I'm trying to decide if that's a loose impediment. And this thing was as big as it's this like table. two-ton boulder. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. massive. It was put there on purpose. So the rules official, Orlando Pope, comes over and reads the definition of a loose impediment, which is that if it's not embedded in the ground and can be moved by a human within a reasonable amount of time, it's a loose impediment. A human that's that's singular. A human, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know if it was human or humans. Okay. But so uh, Fluff was catting for Tiger at the time, and he enlisted some people in the gallery to come over and move this thing. And I don't know why, but instantly I thought somebody's going to step on this ball. Then we got a whole other set of problems. So I kind of had my hand down on the ground over Tiger's ball, and he kind of bends down and grabs me on the shoulder, and I looked up and and he realized what I was doing, and then he was trying to push people away from me as well. Um, but it happened, and it was probably not the right ruling. But at the time, 
It was okay, and it was a good mo- moment that... Made for great TV. Made for great TV, and it showed the power of Tiger Woods at the time. Oh, yeah. Nobody else was going to get those people to come do that. Uh, it did fit in the rules. It, it ruffled a lot of feathers and caused a lot of eyebrows to get raised, but um, nobody else was going to get that. You know, Arnold Palmer yeah. used to have people stand behind the green, and they would, if he hit it over the green, they'd knock it back. <laughs> and because they loved him, yeah. right? They all loved him, and they were the same way with Tiger. So speaking of the greats, have you uh, played a round of golf with Jack Nicklaus? So playing in the practice round for the PGA Championship at Valhalla, uh, we were on the 15th hole, and a cart drives up, and the, and the people kind of part, and it was Jack. And I was playing with uh, Justin Leonard and Sergio Garcia. And Steve Flesh. I don't know if you remember Steve Flesh. Yeah. Um, one of my best friends and just a great guy. And Jack walks up on the tee and he says, you know, hey guys, you know, I, I want to play these last couple of holes with you. I know, I know the golf. He, he built the golf course. He said, but I'd sure like to play these last couple of holes. Do y'all mind if I join you? Well, I, I, yeah. I crapped him yeah. on, the, on the tee and said, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I didn't think he knew who I was. Obviously, you know who the other ones are. And I walked up and stuck my hand out and said, Mr. Nicholas, I'm Harrison Frazier. He says, I know who you are. He said, let's go play the next couple holes. So I got to spend, you know, four holes with him on his golf course in a very laid-back environment. And it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. Who, who, who are, I guess, besides the obvious, right? Obviously, you have close relationships with, with Justin Leonard and some of the other folks that you've talked about, but who are some of the other golfers on tour that you are or would consider to be close friends of yours that, that people may not know about? Well, I think, um, you know, right now, uh, most of my crew has kind of moved on, and, and, I'm, and I'm moving on as well. So I was forced to become friends with guys that are younger than me. But um, uh, it kind of raised, it runs the gamut. Uh, I'm, I'm friends with David Duvall, um, with Davis Love. They're, they're older or my age, been around. Uh, the younger guys like Ryan Palmer, Bo Van Pelt, Jason Bone. You know, the, the good guys, the salt of the earth guys that are hard workers that, you know, maybe don't get all the recognition that they deserve, but they're, they're fine people and fine players in their own right. Um, you know, Tim Heron was a good friend for a long time. Carl Patterson, I don't know if you guys know who he is, a big, big jolly Swede. Yeah. Yep. Uh, absolutely one of my favorite people. Um, you know, so these are, are probably names that are, don't have a lot of sex appeal, but uh, they're, good fr- they're good guys and good friends. They're peers. I trust them. Do, do the local young golfers, the Jordan Spees, the Colt Nose, those guys around here, do they come talk to you to get any tips or advice well, I think counseling they, they do they call me every once in a while and want to know you know kind of how would you handle this situation or what would you do here or why is this guy being difficult and and I can help them navigate through that kind of stuff uh Jordan and I have been friends for four or five years I, I absolutely think he's a fine fine human being uh no doubt uh as well as a great player uh he's got a lot of people around him and 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 doesn't need my help I certainly can't offer any advice on where he's going now, but uh, little things, you know, little things like uh, uh, he and I do the junior clinic together at the, at the Byron Nelson, right. you know, uh, DA Wybring did that for me when I came out and said, this is important and here's why. And so, you know, I kind of did that with Jordan and said, this is why you should do it. And, and it's important. Take time to say thank you to this group. Uh, you know, but, but other than just being kind of the, you know, the gray beard, 
of the group that they feel like they can say, hey, what's up? Every once in a while, there's not a lot. You know, it's not like a mentor type situation. So if you had one round to play in your life, where would you play it? Cypress Point. Okay, why? Just the tradition and the history. Dr. Alistair McKenzie is my favorite architect of all time because of the strategy. Uh, you also then uh, put it on the location where it is, on the on the Monterey Peninsula, um, the and, variety. And uber difficult to get on. Uh, yes, very hard to get on to. Um, but I've never experienced anything but warm feelings and being very welcome yeah. whenever I'm there. Uh, I will qualify that answer saying that if I can control the weather. Yeah. So, you know, I would want it to be 60 to so 75. Under, under this and, hypothetical, you can control the weather. Yes, if I can so control the weather. Point. Yeah, it, it rolls through the trees. It's got big green, small green, strategic holes, long holes. And then you go out onto the ocean and you got some holes through the dunes. Uh, just the whole story behind it. I find it to be a very magical and very inspiring place. What's your favorite hole of all time? What is my favorite hole of all time is probably um, probably number seven at Pebble Beach. Okay, it's a hundred and five yard par three down the hill that plays off the ocean. I've hit sand wedge into it, and I've hit six iron. Wow! And uh, when you're out there, you realize that you're a very very small speck on this big ball. And, uh, you know, you got seals and the otters and the sea lions and, and, and waves crashing and, and, and there's not people around it. It's very isolated. You're out on that promontory and, uh, there's just no better place to sit there for a minute and look around and say, holy smokes, look at what I'm, look at what I'm able to do. Wow. That's all right. So I got to uh, ask you a couple questions about playing Augusta national. Yeah. So the one time that I was able to go to the tournament and walk around, the thing that really struck me is because there's some low scores at, at the Masters, mm. I didn't realize how difficult the course was. Yeah. Like even number one, that tee shot is, you know, little slight dog leg to the right, but it's tight all the way down. Yes. What were your thoughts on playing it after? Well, so uh, I had been invited to play a couple of times um, over the last 15 years, and I always turned it down because I didn't want to play it until I earned my spot. You know, I didn't want to go on a code of a corporate member or something else. I wanted to earn my spot. I'm happy to take that invite now. <laughs> if anybody out there wants to invite me to go we, play we, golf. We have a ton of listeners here. Yes, so, I will. Uh, tomorrow yeah, you'll be in Augusta. Uh, hopefully I'm inundated with requests. Um, <laughs> but uh, so when you get your invitation to play, you are able to come out as much as you want to go practice. Now, you can't loiter. You can't hang around the club. You can't, you know, you're not a member. But you can call and make a tee time. You can drive down as uh, Magnolia Lane and hit a few balls and then go play on the course. And that first time, I hit some balls on the small range, and the starter walked out and ushered me, Mr. Frazier, there's a group coming. You need to go to the tee. And so my caddy and I walked up and, and, and I walked on that first tee and looked out and saw heaven, in my opinion. Yeah. And the gravity of the moment struck me. There was nobody around, just my caddy, and I couldn't get the ball on the tee. <laughs> I, I, my hand was shaken. And, and I, all, this is during the tournament or the practice round? No, this round? was a practice round three, oh three months before the tournament. Three months before the tournament. I went back a few other times and played it to kind of get over it. To make sure you get the tee in the ground? Yeah, to make sure you kind of get over <laughs> it. But there's, um, it is the ultimate invite um, 
in golf, and it's the highest honor I think that you can get other than, you know, maybe Hall of Fame or something like that. But getting just to play in Augusta is a big freaking deal. Sure. People forget that. You know, it's a very, very small field, and it's, 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 your, it's your bucket list, right? Um, but playing in the tournament was um, intimidating, to say the least, uh, because you're so exposed. If, you're, if your touch isn't good that day or if your chipping isn't great, those greens as hard and as fast as they are, one small mistake is magnified. And the people there are educated golf fans. You know, they know if you've hit a good shot or not, and, and, and they, they're polite. But, but they you, know. But yeah. they know. They know if you've screwed it up. And so you don't feel judged, but you just feel exposed. You know, the, um, and, and every shot, if you grow up watching that tournament on TV, I can sit on number 11 fairway, can remember everything from Nick Faldo winning on the playoff there to Larry Mize chipping in to K.J. Choi holding out with a four iron to, you know, to all these things. And you think, holy crap, I'm right here. I'm in the middle of it. So unfortunately, it wasn't until about, maybe the start of the second round before I looked up and realized, oh, I got a golf tournament I got to play, you know? So um, I didn't play well. I didn't make the cut, but it didn't sour my experience at all. Yeah, fantastic. very, very, very special. Um, one thing I want to touch on real quick, we talked about this early on, So, and I found this amazing. So uh, the challenge of... If I were to blindfold you, and if you were to know the, 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 the players in a specific event, I gave you a list, and blindfolded you, turned your back, player hits a ball, because you identify that player based on the sound of the strike of the club on that ball. Yeah, it'd have to be a smaller subset than, than the whole tournament, but if you've got 10 guys in front of you, and if you know those guys... So 10 guys in front of you. Yeah, you know who they are, you know how they play... I can turn around and tell you who hit that shot or, uh, and, and not always, you know, not always. Uh, but, but some of them just sound different than other people. Yeah. You know, some guys are great players, but their iron shots sound just a little clanky. You know, Sergio Garcia traps the ball so much and takes huge divots. You can, you can tell when Tiger Woods hits it or when Rory McIlroy hits it. Now, if those two are together, it's tough to tell. It's tough to tell, obviously. Yeah. I don't think you could because they sound similar, but their their two impacts sound so much different than everybody else that you can pick it out. It's distinguishable. Yes. So real quick, so so tell us about the project that you're working on here in Dallas mm-hmm. and and what what your involvement in that is. Well, so um you know, about four four years ago. I had just heard rumors that there was a new golf course that was in the works in Dallas. I didn't know much about it. A friend of mine in town who's a developer uh, called me and said, I, let's go get some coffee. I want to talk to you about something. And uh, he had been given a task by the city of Dallas and by AT&T to find a, a new home for the Byron Nelson. And uh, I knew it was going to be emotional, that, uh, but... Knowing where golf is going now, they, they, change is, is sometimes good, even though it's hard. So I had a choice whether I could get involved in this thing or I could sit back and kind of let it just happen. 
And I felt like I could be a better steward for the salesmanship club and for Mr. Nelson if I, just, if I got involved. So uh, Jonas, the developer, asked me if I would go walk the property and tell him, you know, give him my opinion on what I thought it should be. Uh, they had a piece of property picked out. In the, in the floodplain, it was an old abandoned landfill that had been an eyesore for the city of Dallas, and, and they had to do something with it. Um, the time was, was up. They had a 30-year uh, reprieve for having to clean it up. And their choices were to try to make it some type of HUD-based housing or maybe a dog park or a sports fields or something else. They were still going to have to spend a lot of money. And so I went and walked it and uh, instantly thought it would, should be a Lynx-style uh, open golf course, uh, minimalist in its design, meant to use less water, less fertilizer, all these things that are important in our world now. And uh, I advised Jonas who I thought should be the architects that they should consider. And that was the extent of it. Uh, when I was going to go back and go play, and I couldn't, uh, he kept kind of asking me to do more and more and more. So now my involvement's grown to the point where I'm on the board. Um, I've helped get it established. Um, and now that I'm not going to play uh, much anymore, I'm taking on a full-time role with them to try to help make this thing better and, and try to really grow it into the best golf course we can. And do you think that one day that there will be a major you know, PGA Tour event there hosted? Well, the Byron Nelson's going to be there for well, 10 years. Byron so Nelson, that's the PGA Tour. You mean a major. Open, like a major. Um, is it that caliber of course? Is, I think is it, it a U.S. Open course? Yeah, I think it is. I think that um, knowing that the USGA, it's a mission statement of theirs to get away from the, the Northeast, you know, 100-year-old clubs and try to do something different that looks different on TV, that provides a different experience for the players. You saw that in Washington. Uh, this year at Chambers Bay. Uh, very, very different. Whether it was well-received or not, it was a, uh, a a majestic setting. We don't have the view the views that they do, uh, but I believe it's a, it's a great golf course, and I think it could host it. Uh, the USGA has got to want to come to Dallas. You know, they have to want to. Um, it's hot, and, uh, you know, there there's some other things, but if they want to come to Dallas, I think it's a fantastic option and i think it'll stand up we uh, we feel like we can make it play as hard or as easy as the situation uh, requires um, and i think the players are going to like it. They're, it they're, you're not going to make everybody happy you're going to have a, a big name come in that's not going to play well and they're going to say they don't like that type of golf it is going to be different than what we're used to it's not a point a point b it's going to be a ground game similar to what you'd see at a shinnecock or prairie dunes or or even more relative would be a you know something in the UK. But that's not a bad thing for Dallas. We're hot, we're dry, we're dusty, we're windy. You know, our ground is firm. So why not embrace that and try to make it good? But but we think we think guys are gonna like it. And we're very, very excited about it. And we also think the members are gonna love it. So we're not trying to replace other golf courses. We're not trying to pull other people away and make it their main thing. There's a there's a sense of community, um, you know, civic goodwill, right, to support this thing to help Dallas. Um, but we think the players are going to – we think they're going to respond nicely. That's great. 
Harrison, thanks a ton for being here. Uh, you know, as our, our time is winding down, the only thing I can think of is all of these other questions that I have written down that I want to be able to ask you. Uh, caddy information, all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to have you back on again. Sometime, I'll, I'll come so. back. Not a problem. I enjoyed it. Well, it thanks fun. a ton for being here. Rob, Thank you. always good to see you. <laughs> yes. And remember, everyone... We're available now on iTunes and SoundCloud. Go to facebook.com slash Podcast. Let us know your thoughts, ideas for future episodes. Thanks for joining us.